Well, good morning, everybody. I'm sure I look a bit different than uh, Matt, who usually preaches. As I mentioned already, they are uh, they went away for the weekend, um, enjoying winter holiday, and so I'll be bringing the sermon this morning, which will be on Hebrews 13, which is a, a little break from what we've been doing in the past, but going through the New Testament book by book. And it's quite strange, actually, to do a once-off sermon uh, on such an important passage such as Hebrews 13, especially since it's at the end of the book. But after praying, I believe that the Holy Spirit has much to say to us this morning about what Hebrews 13 teaches. But because Hebrews 13 is at the end of this book, I think it's important for us to just get a little bit of context, what goes before, what happens in Hebrews 1 to 12, that then leads us into Hebrews 13. Now, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is widely considered to be a sermon, actually. Now, it's, it's unclear whether Hebrews was a, a written sermon that was meant to be read to a church, or whether the, somebody was making notes about the sermon. But it is clear to us, at least, that the book of Hebrews was a sermon said to a bunch of Jews, a bunch of Hebrews. And for that reason, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery throughout the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews can almost be said to be an exposition or an expository sermon of the book of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. And so their foundation for understanding Hebrews lies in Hebrews 1, where we are told that the same God who spoke through the fathers and the prophets in the Old Testament continues today to speak through Jesus, the Son. This is the foundation of the Old Testament message that we find in the book of Hebrews. And I would say it's virtually impossible to read the Old Testament in the same way after reading the book of Hebrews. After reading Hebrews, you will see how Jesus is the fulfillment of so many Old Testament images. That when you go back to the Old Testament, you're like, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. Good examples of this would be the fathers and the prophets through whom God spoke. Today, he speaks through Christ the Son. Or, or maybe the faithful people of God were faithful to God's law but fail. Jesus is shown to be the ultimate faithful one. Or the great high priests of the Old Testament making intercession for the people, making sacrifices for the people. Jesus is shown to be a greater high priest. And we see this throughout the entire book. We see that there was a disobedient people in the Old Testament, the wilderness generation. And we see there are disobedient people today even among the church. We see that there was a faithful people, a, a faithful people God kept for himself, and we see that even today. And I would argue that the central message of the book of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 4 to 10, where we see that Jesus is the greater high priest. Jesus makes a sacrifice for his people. He makes a sacrifice of himself and presents that to the Father. And now he's seated at the right hand making intercession for us. And there's a word for this, they call this typology. It just means that there are various types and shadows in the Old Testament that Jesus then fulfills. And so as we then turn to this final chapter in Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, we find the pastor's application of everything that was said before. In this chapter, Hebrews 13, we find the application of the fact that Jesus being our high priest what does this mean for us? Because we are the faithful people of God, what does this mean for us? Because Jesus sacrificed himself, what does this mean for us today? And I've titled today's sermon, Instructions for a Life of Gratitude 
and godly fear. Instructions for a life of gratitude and godly fear. And if you have your Bibles open, if you just look at the previous chapter in chapter 12, you'll see that chapter 12 ends with the words, Since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the entire Hebrews 1 to 12 shows us how Jesus is the greater And then chapter 13 gives us instructions of how we can bring acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire. And we'll be seeing this in various parts today. So for those of you taking notes, our first point today will be that we should seek to deny ourselves. Seek to deny ourselves. If we are to bring acceptable worship to God, we need to deny ourselves. Follow with me in verse 1. In verse 1 we read, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Now in verse 1, we are instructed that we should let brotherly love continue. Now, for many of us, the idea of brotherly love comes quite normal. I mean, we're, we're Christians after all, and the entire New Testament speaks about brothers and sisters. We should love one another. Yet, the phrase brotherly love is really rare. It's a very rare phrase outside of Christian literature at this time. It's actually only Christian literature that had this virtue of loving one another as a family, loving people who are not your family as your family. And I would say the main reason for this sort of love to be rare outside of Christianity is because this sort of love really does not come naturally to anyone. I mean, loving your family comes naturally. Loving your children, loving your brother, loving your sister, or even your parents, that comes naturally. But what about loving the one who irritates you during the week, or the person who is irritating during church or the person who perhaps speaks too much or too loud, right? That's really difficult. And so as we look at this first point, which tells us to let brotherly love continue, we're reminded that in order to love one another as a family, we need to deny ourselves, which again is something which comes very difficult. And I actually have a funny story about self-denial, which actually happened a few weeks ago. I, I was reading through a passage, I think I was preparing for this or something, and I, and I read about self-denial, and I was like, wow, that's, that's something I need to pray for. So I prayed the morning, and I was like, Lord, I really would love for you to give me more opportunities to deny myself. Never pray that prayer, uh, let me tell you. So I prayed the prayer, I asked the Lord to give me opportunities to, to deny myself. And a few minutes later, Matt messaged me, and he's like, hey, Deborah and I are sick at home. It's like, okay. Immediately as I read the message, I, I was like, I felt really convicted. I should ask Matt, should I pick the kids up from school? Should I bring you guys food? And I was like, oh, I really don't want to. I'll be, the, I'll be a nice Christian, be like, oh, I'm praying for you guys, thinking of you, whatever. And a few minutes later, Matt was like, hey, could you please pick the kids up from school? And I was like, oh, man, okay. So pick the kids up from school, sit in traffic after that. As I get to the gym an hour later, Kirill phones me. He's like, hey, man, uh, can you please uh, drive me to the car shop this evening at 12 o'clock? It's like, oh, man. 
I'm going to go to bed at like half past 12, maybe one o'clock, sleep a few hours, really convinced. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And again, if it wasn't for that prayer this that morning, I would have not seen that as acts of self-denial. But I realized in that moment, this is God bringing what I prayed for this morning over my path. Dying, denying myself, denying my time, asking for the Lord to help me. And for all of us, this sort of love does not come naturally. We need to pray for God to make our hearts prepared and act in such a way to deny ourselves. Because by nature, we are selfish. We will not deny ourselves if God does not give us the power by Spirit to do so. But it is interesting that in this passage, the idea of brotherly love is paired with hospitality. Now, the, the English in this passage really fails us because the Greek here, in fact, does not tell us to just do hospitality for the sake of it. But in actual fact, the Greek tells us to love hosting people. The Greek actually tells us, love your brothers and love the stranger. Love showing hospitality. We are not just to remember to do the nice Christian thing and host people. We are reminded to actually love hosting people. Not begrudgingly, not doing it because they invited us over, but we are to show hospitality and love showing hospitality. Now again, this is a great challenge. Because hospitality is not something that comes naturally to any of us. Perhaps you enjoy having people over, but you don't having so much dishes afterwards. Or perhaps you don't mind the dishes, but people really make you tired. The Bible calls us to deny ourselves and be hosts. And not just be hosts, but love being hosts. Love showing hospitality. Now the New Testament is filled with examples of this. We are told of the apostles having people over all the time. Them having all things in common. The earliest Christians had a lot of opportunities to have strangers over. Why? Well, I mean, there was many travelers, many business people, refugees, teachers, even Christians fleeing from persecution. For us today, we actually have to go out of our way to host people. People don't just come by our door knocking, asking for food. So secondly, we are called to deny ourselves by hosting people, by showing hospitality and actually loving it, actually enjoy doing it. And the third way in this passage that we are called to deny ourselves, we find in verse 3. We are called to deny ourselves by remembering our suffering brothers and sisters, or as verse 3 tells us, those who are in prison and are being mistreated. Now you might be sitting there and thinking, well, how, how does this ask us to deny ourselves? How, how are remembering those who are in prison calling us to deny ourselves? Well, if we look at this passage, the idea of remembering isn't just thinking about those, oh, I'll give you thoughts and prayers. No, here, the remembering that they are called to is actually visiting those in prison, taking them gifts, taking them food, because it wasn't like a prison system here in Norway where you get a, a TV and a nice meal, maybe even a PlayStation. No, when you were in prison in those days, you were put in a hole in the ground. Your family and your friends had to bring you food, had to bring you gifts, had to look after you in a sense. And if you were a Christian in those days, thrown in jail, you knew the cost of going to your friends. You knew that if you were going to take your friends' gifts or food or visiting them, the chance of you being thrown in prison was pretty big as well. So if you wanted to look after your friends in jail, 
or remember those in jail, that meant possibly going to jail yourself. Caring for your brother and your sister who were in jail meant possibly going there yourself. So ministering and praying for your fellow brother and sister in jail during these days could have led to your own imprisonment as well. This was possibly one of the greatest acts of self-denial that there was. Caring for the people that called themselves your brothers and sisters could have meant your own death. Could have meant you being in prison as well. Now, for us, we might be sitting here today and thinking, well, that doesn't really have any effect on me. I don't have anybody in jail to care for. I don't have anybody really that if I minister to them, I might not be thrown in jail. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, just think about the person that costs you a little bit more to care for them. Maybe it doesn't cost you your life. Maybe it doesn't cost you your freedom. But maybe it's the person that costs you just a little bit more emotional bandwidth. Or maybe there's somebody that you know that just needs monetary support. Or maybe needs physical or some emotional support. And you know ministering to them will cost you more than somebody else. I mean, all of those friends, it's really easy being with them. It's really easy spending time with them. It's really easy. It really doesn't cost us much. If we're honest, being with them actually fills us up. But with all of those friends or fellow Christians that when we leave, we feel absolutely drained. It actually costs us something to minister to them. There's a cost involved in being with them. So while the cost of self-denial might not mean jail, let us be reminded that we're not always called to minister and care for those we are most comfortable with or those who are we enjoy spending the most amount of time with. So in this first point on self-denial, we see that self-denial is grounded in brotherly love, something which doesn't come naturally. It's grounded in showing hospitality to strangers and loving it, something again which does not come naturally. Showing and supplying for the needs of our brothers who actually make us pay for it, something that costs us, which again does not come naturally to any of us. Secondly then, we can worship God with reverence and awe by being content with what we have. So the second point we'll be looking at after denying self is to be content with what you have. We find this from verse 4, if you want to follow with me in your Bibles. In verse 4 we read, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So let me ask you, what is the main reason for sexual infidelity? What is the main reason why people commit adultery or have sex outside of marriage? I would argue it's not being content with what you have. It's not being content with your spouse. Thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. And here, in the sermon, this pastor implores his hearers to honor marriage. The idea of honoring is to respect or to view something as precious. 
You see, marriage isn't just the signing of papers. It's not just an arrangement that two people have. Marriage here should be seen as a precious jewel, something of high value. And when we look at Ephesians 5, we see why. Ephesians 5 tells us that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. And then in the end of that chapter, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, meaning marriage, refers to Christ and the church. You see, in God's economy, marriage is an earthly image or representation of the relationship between Christ and his church. That means the greatest expression we have of Christ's love for the church is in the way that a husband loves his wife. And likewise, the greatest expression we have of the church's love to Christ is the way in which wives love their husbands. This is what marriage represents. Marriage is the greatest image on this side of eternity to our relationship to Christ. Should we not therefore hold marriage in high esteem? Should we not therefore hold precious the thing which points us to our relationship with Christ? That is why it's so important for husbands and wives to be content with their spouses. And if we continue then, we see that the marriage bed here is just an idiom for sexual purity. We should keep ourselves pure. The defilement which this, the sermon has in mind here is the idea of adultery or the idea of sexual infidelity outside of marriage. The idea is those involved in sexual activity outside of the sanctity of marriage. So here we have two images. First, we have the image of adultery. And secondly, we have the idea of sex outside of marriage. These two words basically cover all illicit sexual behavior. For those involved in dishonoring marriage and those defiling themselves. And we see the result is the same. We're told that the judgment of God awaits both. Now, if we look at marriage today, we can certainly say that marriage is under attack. Many of us would say, yeah, people in Norway, they don't even get married anymore. And I mean, the, the, the divorce rates worldwide is sky high. So we can say, yeah, sure, this passage is very applicable to us today. But if we look 2,000 years back, it was exactly the same thing. If we think about the Greco-Roman culture, it was even more perverse than what we see today. I mean, men were actually encouraged and expected to have a mistress on the side, to have sexual partners when their wives can't have sex with them or for when they're traveling. The point is very clear. 2,000 years ago, as it is today, you have to be content with the wife or husband you have, and if you don't have one, you need to be contained as well. You need to be contained with your singleness as well as with the partner of your youth. Those who are single should not be discontent and run into lives of sexual immorality. They should wait. And those who have a wife, who have a husband, they should be contained. For God is the one, ultimately, who provides them for you. So as we go then to verse 5, I find it very interesting that the sin of sexual impurity or adultery and the sin of covetousness or desiring something that you don't have is linked in the New Testament. 
It's linked in five passages in the New Testament, in fact. And I think it's because the seventh commandment and the eighth commandment in the Ten Commandments is the one is don't be sexually pure. Do not commit adultery. And the next one is don't cover that what your neighbor has. And I think it's quite clear for us that both sexual immorality, cheating on your spouse, and pursuing something like money or being greedy or something that you don't have, both look at God's provision. Both look at God as provider and say that's not enough. It's being discontent with God who is our provider. It's seeking to gratify the flesh, not being content with your possessions, not being content with your love, actually telling God who is our provider that he did not provide good enough. You see, this sort of discontentment is actually incompatible with being a Christian. At the heart of being a Christian, it's looking at what God has given us and being content, saying, God, you're my provider. I'm so grateful for what I have. That is why desiring what your neighbor has, whether it is his wife or his possessions, is pointing the finger at God and telling him, what you gave me is not good enough. That is why we as Christians are exhorted to keep our lives free from the love of money, to be content with what we have. And if you look at this passage, the basis for this contentment is the fact that God has promised something. He promised that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. That is God's promise to us. We do not need to worry because God is the one who provides for us. Since he will never leave us nor forsake us, he's the one who provides for us. And for that reason, we can profess with the psalmist and with those in Hebrews that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. The Lord has given us everything, whether it is help or possessions or a spouse or everything. Everything we need on the road to eternity, we have been furnished with. And I think about this. I bet that there's one thing daily that each of us can be discontent with. I mean, this could be natural things. Perhaps you're not content with the salary you're getting. Perhaps the person next to you gets more money and you're actually doing more work. Perhaps it's a spiritual reason. Perhaps you're discontent actually with being a Christian. Since you being a Christian here in Norway means that you don't have a lot of friends. You are in a small church. Perhaps you're discontent with your place in this world as a Christian. But here we have a great exhortation. The Lord will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The Lord is our provider. And he has called us to be content with whatever and however he decides to provide for us. And so in the second point, we see that we can only truly bring acceptable worship in godly fear when we are content with what we have. And just like self-denial, being content with what you have doesn't come naturally. We need God's help. We need God's help that when we desire our neighbor's job or our neighbor's car, to pray for God to change our hearts, that we may be content with his provision for us, that he would change our affections, that he would change our hearts, that we look at what we have, we are content with that, whether it is in singleness or in marriage. Being content is a way in which we bring reverence and worship to God. So as we look at verse 7 then, we find our third point for the sermon. Seeing the importance of the local church. 
That's our third point, seeing the importance of the local church. Follow with me in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then jump to verse 17. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So in verse 7, we're exhorted to remember our leaders. Remember your leaders. Now, most commentators, when they look at this verse, would say that the author has the church leaders who are thrown in jail in mind. The, the history tells us that this church and many churches during this time, their leaders were probably in jail or killed. So the idea of remembering your leaders means they were either dead or in jail. They weren't there at the present time. But the important part when we look here is that the leaders weren't just leaders in the church doing the church finances or admin. No, these are the leaders who spoke the word of God to you. These are the leaders who preached the gospel to these people. And how are these people to look? Well, they are to scrutinize the fruit of these leaders' lives. They are to look at their lives and to imitate their faith. Now, because we couldn't go through the entire Hebrews this morning, we see various chapters in the book of Hebrews where the, the author looks at examples in the Old Testament. There are various examples of prophets and teachers being shown in the Old Testament and then the preachers like, look at their faith. Look at the faith of Abraham. Or look at the godlessness of Esau. Look at these examples in the Old Testament. And then the preacher would say, either look at their lives or don't look at their lives. And so the pastor in this passage is actually being put in the same category as these great examples of the Old Testament. The pastor or the leader who brings the word of God to the people is placed on a similar level as the fathers of the prophets who brought the word of God to the people in the Old Testament. And this remembrance is not just a, a sentimental thinking back. It's not just a, oh yeah, that was a, that was a nice leader. I really liked his sermons. Or, oh yeah, that was a really nice guy. I, I really enjoyed spending time with him. No, the pastor here wants these people to look at the lives of the leaders, to remember their way of living, their conduct as Christians, and imitate them. To imitate them. Now, it might be very prideful, actually. Just think about this. A pastor standing before a church saying, remember your leaders, think about your leaders, and Look at their lives and imitate them. That sounds very prideful. But that is in fact exactly what Paul told his hearers as well. In his office as a preacher, in his office as an apostle, Paul said, look at my life and imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I mean, when we look at the church today, we can look at many examples of church leaders and we're like, man, I cannot imitate their lives. Which is why they will be judged. Which is why they will be judged so severely. 
Because we as Christians, we as church members, are in fact called to look at the lives of our leaders and imitate their faith. That is why it's so important for us to be in a local church. Where there is a leader and we can look at their life and say, yes, they are running the race as a Christian. I can imitate their faith. That is why we need to submit ourselves to godly leaders. Which is again why it's such a tragedy when pastors fall into sexual sin. Or when pastors preach error doctrines. Or when pastors are caught in private jets and limousines. They are called to imitate Christ. And if they don't, well, then they'll be judged more severely. That is why the judgment is so severe on church leaders. They're not called only to preach the word. They're actually called to preach the word and in their preaching of the word imitate Christ that their people can both hear the word and see the word. Both hear the word and see somebody doing what they're preaching. I mean, that is why it's so detrimental, I think, to the church here in Norway. That so many young men and women are being discipled by preachers on things like YouTube and Facebook. And while it's great that you're hearing the word preached, it's better than none. Can you imitate those preachers? Can we imitate the life of Paul Washer or John MacArthur? Well, how can you? We're not living with them. We cannot even see how they live. And while I'm sure they are living upstanding lives, we cannot imitate their faith because we do not do life with them. We... As church members are called to imitate the lives of our leaders, imitate their faith. And so if we're sitting here today, we need to decide whether we're going to commit to a local church, not only to hear the word of God preached, but also to imitate the faith of the one who preaches it. And now this exhortation to both hear and imitate the word is followed by a beautiful proclamation of Jesus. We're told that Jesus Christ is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. And if you read this, this chapter, I mean, I read Hebrews 13 a few times in preparation. It's actually as if the preacher here stops his thought. He, he speaks about church leaders and then gives us this glorious declaration of Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think the key to this verse is in verse 7, when he reminds them that these leaders are the ones who spoke the word of God to you. A part of this word of God is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is just a great example of the word of God being preached. And it's also a great example and reminder to that church then, as it is to us, that the Jesus who started something in the distant past, perhaps this church, who's doing a work today, currently, will continue to do that in the future because he's the same yesterday as he is today and he will be forever. Jesus Christ, who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, will return for his people. This is a great reminder to us and a great example of what it means to preach the word of God to people. But this then leads us to the second point on why it is important to be settled in a local church. It's that we may be guarded against strange teachings. See there in verse 9, we're being told about strange teachings to which some were drawn, promising some spiritual strengthening through food, food laws and sacrifices apart from God's grace. Now for many of us this might seem strange since none of us are Jews or I don't think any of us are Jews, but in Judaism there were specific meals that they partook. 
They had ceremonial meals and, and sacrifices. And, and these meals were said to give God's blessing to the people. So they were praying and coming around, eating these meals. And as they ate it, they experienced joy and grace. And now in this church that we're reading about, perhaps some of these Jews were being drawn away from the Christian fellowship, being drawn away from Christian doctrine back to the Judaism of their ancestors, perhaps to the Judaism that they were brought up in. And this preacher comes to them telling them, brothers, these foods that you're eating, these sacrifices you're partaking, they have no value to you. They have no value. The true means of grace and spiritual strength is in Christ. These these Christians, these new Christians were perhaps drawn to a, a spiritual high or a spiritual grace that was not found in Christ. But we're being told here that Jesus is the one in whom we should find our strength. Jesus is the one in whom we should find grace. Now, for many of us, we might say, well, we're not going to fall into that trap, right? There's no foods that we find strength in. Perhaps there's no sacrifices that strengthen our hearts. But how easy is it for us today, perhaps, to find our spiritual strength in a message that proclaims health and wealth? Perhaps we are in a church that proclaims uh, a sort of gospel that promises us great prosperity. And that is the thing in which we place our great strength in. Perhaps we find grace in a Jesus that never judges. You know, perhaps the person tells us, the Jesus of the Old Testament, no, that's, that's a completely different Jesus. The Jesus of the New Testament and the Old Testament are two different ones. Perhaps you find strength in that, a Jesus that changes. And so you see, the context here is not so much different than our context today. These Jews were drawn away by unchristian things that strengthened their hearts and not grace. They were drawn away by strange and diverse teachings that are not Christian. And there are many churches today preaching such teachings. Drawing the hearts of Christians away from the grace of God to the grace of something else. And you see, that is why the local church is so important. If you're in a good local church preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, perhaps you have your heart strengthened by the grace of Christ, you will not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You will not be like these Jews or many in the church today being led away by a false gospel. And I mean the importance of the local church is continued in verses 17 to 19. As the churches and the church members are not only called to imitate the faith of church leaders, not only called to submit to church leaders and their teaching, but they're actually called to obey these leaders they are called to obey their leaders and submit to their authority. But why? Because these leaders are called to watch over the lives of those in their charge. You see, being a preacher is not just preaching the word. As we've already seen, they're going to give an account in the way they live. But they're called shepherd throughout the New Testament because they're called to watch over the lives of their members. They will have to give an account and so, as church members, we should submit to our leaders, not with groaning, but with joy. We should submit to them, not with sighing and thinking we know better, but actually submitting to them with joy. Since we see it's of no advantage, either to them or to us, if we just 
begrudgingly do what they're telling us to do, groaning every time. You see, belonging to a local church is something which really challenges us here in the West. I mean, we, we love to be individuals. We love to do our own thing. Even the Christian life, for many of us, we think that it's really just about our personal relationship with Jesus and maybe going to church once in a while. But if we look at church in the New Testament, we see that what church actually is, is it's a coming together under the word of God, hearing the word preached, hearing the gospel, allowing the gospel to change our hearts, looking at the ones who bring it to us, looking at their lives, and even submitting and obeying them, not begrudgingly, but with joy. So as we as church members look at our own hearts today, perhaps there are many things that could convict us. Perhaps we, we've never even considered imitating the faith of our leaders. Perhaps we really struggle to submit to the authority or the teaching of our leaders. Let us pray for God's strength in this. Since just like the first and the second point, this will not come naturally to us. We need to pray for a heart change. So as we come to our fourth point, let us turn to verse 12. In verse 12 we read, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledges them. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And as we read these verses, we see our fourth point today, that we can only acceptably worship God with reverence and awe by looking onto Jesus. So the fourth point then, looking onto Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, the book of Hebrews draws on a lot of types and shadows in the Old Testament. And it shows us how Jesus is the greater fulfillment of these things in the Old Testament. And, and the Jesus being the greater high priest is one of these. And now the Day of Atonement in the Jewish history was a day when the people of Israel would come together and their sins would be forgiven. So the, the high priest would come and he would sacrifice a bull or a goat and he would take the blood of the bull or goat and he would take the blood and he would spread on the mercy seat. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then he would go out and would, there would be a goat. And the high priest would take his hands and lay the sins of the people on the goat and let it go into the wilderness to be eaten up by wild animals. And so this scapegoat was said to be the sins of the people being killed. And so then when we look at Jesus, we see him being the high priest making these sacrifices for us. But it's also our scapegoat on whom our sins were laid. So we see many of these Old Testament types and shadows finding their fulfillment in Jesus. So when we then read here in, in verses 12 and 13, we find another example of this. We read about Jesus enduring suffering outside of the gate. And in Leviticus 16.27, we read that the bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp, their hides, flesh, and offal to be burnt up. 
And this, this verse would have formed the backdrop for what the author or the, the preacher in Hebrews had in mind. And so with this image of Jesus being the greater sacrifice, we see here that Jesus actually suffered outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus was taken outside of the city. In the same way that the bull and the goat had to be taken outside of the Jewish camp to be killed, Jesus was taken outside of the Jewish city of Jerusalem to be killed. And then we also see the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice, to make the people holy. To make the people holy. And here, the sermon in Hebrews gives us the same message today. That when we look at Jesus and his sacrifice, we should reject the security that comes with what we know. And why do I say this? Well, because the author here challenges all of those who heard and read Hebrews to go outside the camp just as Jesus did. And for them, this camp would have represented Judaism. So what they're hearing is, those of you that are holding fast to Judaism, you need to turn your back on it and look to Jesus who suffered outside the camp. For the listeners here, it meant rejecting Judaism and experiencing the same disgrace as Jesus. And you see for us today, it is exactly the same. Although perhaps we're not turning our back on Judaism, all of us who are Christians, at one point or another, turn our backs on this world. And if we're all honest, this world is the one thing that is continually trying to draw us back into it. Just like Judaism did to those who heard this message. So for us, we need to turn our back on the city, which is the world, and to walk towards Jesus. Scripture tells us that we've been saved from this world and that we're united to Jesus. We cannot continually look back at the world that we know if we want to follow Christ. Just as Jesus suffered outside of the gate of the city, we need to suffer outside the affirmations and acceptance of this world. We need to turn our backs on this world and follow Christ. And yes, when we do this, we will bear the same suffering, perhaps not dying on a cross, but when we turn our backs on this world, we will suffer. We're promised this in the scriptures. But in this world, there's no lasting city. This world will pass away. And so as we turn our world on this city that will pass away, we look towards a city that will be built for us in eternity. We look towards the eternal city of Jesus. Today, we should look unto Jesus and this eternal city which he promises to us. So as the pastor throughout the sermon calls the people to draw near to Christ, come near, come and see who Jesus is, look unto Jesus, in this final chapter he calls them to go out. Go out of where you're comfortable with. Go out from the affirmations and acceptance of this world. Go out and identify with the suffering and reproach of Jesus. And perhaps this is your biggest challenge today. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you think, man, leaving this world would lead to a lot of suffering. Turning my back on this world will mean losing friends, losing family members, losing perhaps my job. Well, to you today, I would say, look unto Jesus. Look unto his suffering and his reproach and the rejection he suffered outside of the camp of Jerusalem. 
We can only be truly Christian if we look unto Jesus and are united in his suffering. We can only be truly Christian when we serve one master. We cannot serve the world and Jesus. Ultimately, you might think that you're turning your back on the world and serve Jesus half-heartedly. But half-hearted service towards Jesus means you're turning your back on him and you're serving this world. The decision you need to make is today before it is too late. So as we then look to verse 15, we see that we as Christians, in fact, do have sacrifices. Right? Just as the Jews had old sacrifices that had types and shadows pointing them towards new things, we see we have sacrifices to be made as well. In verse 15, we read that we have, though, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So firstly, we see that we should offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And the idea here is simply, be thankful, praise God. I mean, how easy is it to come to prayer meetings or prayer requests and we always bring our requests to God? It's really difficult actually to say thanks to God. It's very difficult to bring praise and thanksgiving to God. I'm sure in my own prayer life, if I'm honest, I ask God for more things than I am grateful for. I ask for more things than I say thanks for. And while it's not wrong, I'm sure God is pleased with us asking things, we're called to bring a sacrifice of praise as well. If we understand the gospel, this thanksgiving should be a natural response. If we understand that Jesus suffered outside the gate of the city, that his own people rejected him for us, we will be thankful. I mean, it is impossible not to be thankful when we look at the wrath of God endured by Christ, bearing our sins on, our sins on his account, not to be thankful. I mean, it is impossible to think that Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us and not be thankful. That is why the preacher here goes on to say that being thankful is a sacrifice pleasing to God. Ultimately, being thankful is a sacrifice that flows from a heart that grasps the weight and depth of the gospel. A heart that sees what Christ did for us will overflow with thanksgiving. And secondly, well, we see that doing good things, doing good deeds is another sacrifice for God. And I mean, we've spoken about doing good for our brother and showing hospitality to the stranger already. But here, the author reminds his hearers that doing good is a form of ministry towards one another. That word, which means covenant community, koinonia, is actually the word being used here for sharing with one another, sharing good deeds. And therefore, the message is simple. Christ died for these people around you. Christ died for this covenant community. Christ died for the person around you. So how can we not desire to serve one another? How can we not want to serve those for whom Christ died? How can we not want to serve the person right of us and left of us if we consider the fact that Jesus died for them? If Christ could sacrifice his love for the person sitting next to you, how small is the sacrifice of our time for those? 
How small is the sacrifice of our time or of our prayer efforts or of our money or whatever sacrifice we're called to bear if we consider that Christ sacrificed his life for them? How can we not love those around us if Christ loved them first while they were still sinners? And again, I feel like a broken record. This is very difficult. This does not come naturally. Being thankful very difficult. Serving others, very difficult. So again, we need to pray for God to change our hearts. And I feel this has been the general theme, if I'm not mistaken, both self-denial, being content with what we have, bringing these sacrifices to God. All of these things are impossible in our own strength. Which leads us to our fifth and final point this morning as we draw to a close. God will equip us. God will equip us. Follow me with me in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, this passage is so beautiful. At the end of all these exhortations, which we can all agree is very difficult. If it wasn't for this passage, I would have been like, there is no hope. <laughs> I'm being called to do things that I cannot do. But here we have the great truth that we're not doing any of this in our own strength. That God is working in us to do this work. And the foundation for this is the fact that he is the God of peace. The one who brought Jesus back from the dead, the great shepherd by the blood of the eternal covenant. I mean, that is our hope. Our hope and assurance that he will do this work in us is the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, what's easier to do? Raise somebody from the dead or convicting them to perhaps serve their neighbor? <laughs> right? So the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead gives us a great hope and assurance that he will equip us to do these things which we are called to do. I mean, what a beautiful word we have to describe our relationship to God. The God of peace. The God of wrath and judgment is what we deserve. Right? We deserve God's wrath and judgment, yet how do we see him in verse 20? The God of peace. Because of this great high priestly work of Jesus, we are restored to God. We are restored in fellowship to God, and we as God's children can come to him and see him as the God of peace. Not as the God of wrath or the God of judgment, but we are reconciled to God and can say, we see God as the God of peace. Not only as the God of peace, but also the great shepherd of his sheep. We see here Christ being the great shepherd. We see Moses being the shepherd of God's people outside of Egypt. We see David being the shepherd of God's people. And here we have again our great high priest, being a greater shepherd than all of the shepherds in the Old Testament. So Jesus, as our great shepherd, did not merely open the way to God, but he's actively shepherding us to that promised goal. He's actively shepherding us to the eternal city that waits. And how do we know that we will get there? How do we know that God will keep his promise? Well, we're being told by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is, in fact, the entire teaching of the book of Hebrews. 
that through the blood of Jesus, through his death, we are brought into an eternal covenant with God. Which means God cannot go back on his word. God made a covenant with Christ that he would give him a people of which we are. And he will keep that promise because it is by the blood of his son that covenant was ratified. So in this final passage, we see here that God does not equip us in a way that we no longer need him. No, we're being told that he works in us what is pleasing before him. He's continually doing something in us so that we can continually rely on him to do that which pleases him. And this is the way in which this pastor concludes his sermon by reminding his hearers that perseverance is God's work. Perseverance is God's work. All of these exhortations, whether it is to deny ourselves or to be content with what we have or to serve others, these things are in vain unless we draw near to Christ and are equipped by God. And so as we conclude today, I've mentioned various things this morning that are required of us to offer acceptable worship to God. We have seen that acceptable worship includes self-denial by loving our brothers and showing hospitality. We've seen that acceptable worship includes being content with what we have, whether it's in singleness or in marriage. We need to be content with God's provision in our lives. We offer acceptable worship to God when we are joined to the local church, where we can obey our leaders and not only hear the gospel, but see the gospel and emulate the gospel by looking to our leaders as they live the gospel and be Christ to us. We've also seen that it is devoted to being, doing good to others by looking onto Jesus, our great high priest, who suffered on our behalf and is building an everlasting city to us. Now, this might be overwhelming to many of us. There are, there are many things that are required of us as we are Christians. But here is our hope, brothers and sisters, that the gospel of our great shepherd, our God of peace, this gospel, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has made us righteous. We are justified, and therefore we will be equipped to run this race with endurance. So you see, these things should not overwhelm us. Yes, we should be convicted. I'm sure many of us lack in many of these areas, and we should be convicted. But the answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to try and do more. But ultimately, the answer and solution to these exhortations is to pray and ask for God to equip us to do these things. Why? We need to be equipped that we may bring acceptable and reverent worship that is due our God. Let us pray. So Lord, what, a, what an overwhelming idea it can be that we have to deny ourselves and show hospitality to others and be content with what we have. To look unto Jesus presenting sacrifices like loving one another. Yet Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ which indeed equips us to do every good work that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so, Lord, I pray for each person sitting here today. I pray for, for them to reflect on this sermon and on this passage in Hebrews 13 in areas they might lack and come to you in prayer that they might find their equipping 
from you, Lord, that you may equip them to do these things, that they may bring acceptable and reverent worship to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.